Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Push the button. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. I'm Ari McGee. Thanks for joining us. I am joined, as always, by an impressive cast. Let's get right into it. First and foremost, and I mean first and foremost, Mr. Jim Heskett. Hell yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. The awesome cream in this wonder sandwich that we're about to spin for you right now is Mr. Nick Dacker. I'm happy to be your cream. I know you are. I expect those kind of things from you, man. Thank you. Yeah. And joining us very specially, we have the author of the Shelby Alexander series, as well as the prolific narrator of over a hundred audiobooks, a guy who makes me want to step away from the mic because his voice is so smooth. The one and only Mr. Craig Hart. Glad to be here. Coming off a bad cold, though, so my dulcet tone is going to be less dulcety than normal but more like tiros yeah 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 i think you're still pretty smooth brother i think you're still pretty smooth so what's going on guys everybody having a good week yeah 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 okay right on right on craig if anyone uh i'm not sure in what order these episodes are coming out but that's why i wanted to read craig in so you guys kind of knew who he was and uh kind of what his pedigree is craig's a great guy was on story on the spot with us all the time and uh, it's nice to have him here. Maybe I can finally get an opinion that's mildly less ranty about some of the things. But I don't know. He kind of looks like he's got his rant face on today. Yeah. Got, got my rant shirt on. With rant one, rant two. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. All right. Good deal, guys. Well, since we have all of our stories ready, let's take a few seconds and get into the news we do it so well we do it so well (laughs) honestly i feel like if we ever get the drop right we'll be pod people and everyone should probably worry about us at that point so all right first story we have this is something i've never had to deal with i don't know if you guys have or maybe you have a little more insight into it the story comes to us from the ally i guess they call themselves it's the Alliance of Independent Authors. And it's what to do if Amazon KDP asks you to prove your publishing rights. So the first paragraph is, while the aim of many indie authors is true independence, at the moment, most of us still heavily rely on one particular store, Amazon, which is why when you receive a threat from them, like having your publishing account closed or your affiliate account shut or your book pulled unless you can prove you own the rights, it's scary. In this post, Ally team looks at what you should do if Amazon asks you to prove your publishing rights. So have you guys ever had to deal with this? Let's, uh, Jim, you're shaking your head. Yeah, this happened to me one time when I published a book. I don't remember which book it was, but after I hit the publish button, within a few hours, I got an email from Amazon. It was very scary sounding, very threatening, said, you know, like, we need you to prove who you are prove that you have the rights to publish this book and you own the copyright. And I freaked out for a second. Then I hit reply and I wrote back. My name is Jim Heskett. I wrote this book. I own the copyright and I have the rights to publish it. Sincerely, Jim Heskett. And I never heard anything back about it again. And the book published just fine. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. 
I'm no lawyer, but <laughs> that that's sounds pretty reliable. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a repeatable kind of success if this happens to you, but that's it what sounds very much like the kid who's writing a doctor's note from his parents to skip school. You know? <laughs> hey, it worked. Jim is sick today. Don't look at Jim too closely. Signed Jim's parents. <laughs> Nick, what about you, man? Never happened to me, but I've heard similar to Jim, like it kind of depends on who you get, meaning which customer rep is dealing with it. I think what's probably happening is there's something plagiarism in the title or the content or not, or it's just a false positive and the computer called Amazon flags it. And then a human who may or may not understand English very well will go through it and then just send that email. Um, or maybe the email is just automatically generated. I don't know. However, it happens when it gets to you, when you reply, I believe an actual human representative will read that. And so I've heard it just depends on which rep you get. And you can literally, and I haven't done it with this particular case, but I have reached out to Amazon about the same issue and it wasn't being resolved. And so I sent the same email response and somebody else replied and got it resolved. So it, it's one of those things where I think if you just keep pestering them, you're eventually going to get somebody else. I mean, eventually, and this is what happened to me, you'll eventually get somebody who's at least calling themselves a manager. I mean, you'll get to go up the chain a little bit. I don't know if that's true or not, but this person seemed to perhaps understand English slightly more than the previous reps I had gotten. So that was good. So that might be one tack is uh, just keep asking, <laughs> squeaky wheel and all that. Right on. Craig, any of this ever popped up with you? Yeah, I've had a couple of times. First of all, I think you know Nick is right about if we just fall prey to the algorithm when it comes to Amazon so many times and you're at the mercy of whoever you get as the end result of the human. One was I put in my own book, published it, same thing as Jim was talking about. It was, I got an email and hit, like he said, it's terrifying, especially if you're exclusive with Amazon, what are you going to do? And I sent, did the same thing. This is mine. That was about <laughs> it. And they opened it up. And it's funny because in the article it says, that is not an acceptable form of documentation, <laughs> a personal statement, but at least in a couple of cases, it is. There was another instance where I was publishing something for somebody else through a company, and I had to send in a contract in that case, so that wasn't a big deal. The third time, so I guess there were three times, they locked my account, and I freaked out for about 24 mm. hours. And again, it turned out to be fine. It was just a weird algorithm thing locked mm. it down. I had to wait till I can get in contact with somebody who, as Nick said, spoke English. Just dealing with a copyright issue with somebody who isn't a native English speaker <laughs> is kind of nightmarish. It, it did eventually get worked out because there was there weren't any actual problems with it. But it is terrifying to be at the mercy of a robot like that. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, for sure. And so those things all kind of seem like they worked for you guys. Maybe like after the fact. Is there anything you can think of that you could do before that would help uh, preclude this? I mean, you know, I know that a lot of new authors are very concerned about copyright and rights and all that. Do you guys copyright your books? Do you think that would help or anything like that? Or are you just kind of stuck dealing with it when no, it comes? Legally, as soon as you upload a book, technically, as soon as you put your name on something, it is copyrighted. Now, that's not registered through the Library of Congress, so it typically won't hold up in court. If somebody comes across and says, I have the same file with the same name, with the same time and date stamp and all that, and then assuming the judge actually knows anything about the internet and computers and can actually decipher whether or not that's real, like 
there's all kinds of stuff that you can get into. So there's a big gray area there. But the best way to answer your question, all right, I found to prevent any of this from happening is to simply not write and publish books. Mm, mm, <laughs> mm. So that's very prudent. It, very it turns prudent. out all publishing problems go away. Yes. <laughs> when you do that. So, yes, I, I mean, agree. hey, take my advice or leave it. I'm just saying that's the best. Go. He's not, he's uh, not pushing this on anybody. Just, it's an right, option. right. It's yes. not, there is an option. Just stop. <laughs> stop. It, it is. I have think I've noticed that the length of time in your Amazon history as being an author on Amazon just might have an impact. Like I haven't had any issues for the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's just because I have a track record now and it's the monitor newer accounts possibly closer. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's not possibility. Okay, right on, right on. Well, I am currently trying to get a, a lawyer who specializes in copyright to come chat with us uh, so we can throw all of our legal questions at them and see if they have something for us. I'll keep you guys up to date if and when that happens. So next story, moving on. It's not really a story. It's a question. See, this is what I'm allowed to do because I have the microphone more is I'm allowed to ask questions that I want answers to and pretend like it's for the show. But in reality, it's just me wanting questions answered. So it's about to get really personal, isn't it? It is. Um, where do babies come from? Because I keep <laughs> having children and I'm hoping you guys can help me with this. Uh, uh, I'm well, on you're three. either doing something right or doing something wrong, depending on your perspective. I, it's probably a little bit of both, sir. It's probably a little <laughs> bit of both. All right. Well, the real question that I got for you guys, if you are a newer author, see, I, I always try to keep that in mind. You know, we've all got a whole bushel full of books out there, and it's probably been a while since you've had to worry about some of these kind of rudimentary steps. But a lot of people think about this stuff, you know, it's concerning to them. So my question is, is dialogue. How do you guys write dialogue and how do you make it believable so that people enjoy it? What are your tips and tactics for doing that? Let's start with everyone. No one's looking at the camera right now. <laughs> Jim just made eye contact. So, Jim, <laughs> what do you do? How do you write good dialogue, man? What's your secret? My secret? Well, someone told me or I read somewhere that dialogue is supposed to reveal character or advance the plot or do both. I mean, I think I try to make dialogue that sounds close to human speech, but isn't exactly, you know, I don't include things like ums and ahs and likes. You know, if you're writing a valley girl and you want to demonstrate she's a valley girl, throw a like into that first sentence, but don't do it every single sentence because it will make people super annoyed. You know, there's just little things I think you can pick up over time, like. When I was a new writer, I would have characters announce each other's names at the beginning of every sentence. Like, Nick, what do you think about this? I don't know if that's a good idea, Nick. What do you think, Nick? People don't talk like that in real life. You know, you don't say that was your schizophrenic book, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Maybe your problem is that all your characters were named Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Once I grew beyond that, I think I really came into my own as a writer. Once I discovered other names. I'm sorry. Go ahead, man. I mean, interrupt you. There's really not a whole lot of trick to it. You just try to make dialogue that sounds like, I mean, in general, my first draft dialogue is mostly plot. You know, I'm just the characters are saying things to each other that they need to say for the plot to move forward. And then in subsequent drafts, I go back and I change words like, would this character use that word? Or that's about it. You know, I just go smooth it over and try to make it still hit the mark of conveying the information I wanted to convey while also sounding more like real speech. Right on, right on. Craig, what you got for him, Craig? 
I think Jim is right. It's dialogue should serve a purpose. There is a skill to writing dialogue so it sounds like what people would say, but you're not actually writing down exactly what people would say. I think Jim touched on that too. You don't like you don't put in the ums and the likes. And if you do put in a like, it's just to set a character up. Same thing with like accents or dialects, you know. About the only person I can think of offhand who got away with writing dialect exactly would be Mark Twain. And I know Mark Twain. <laughs> so yeah. he was a master of it. Other than that, just give a little flavor. It's sort of like when I'm doing narration and I do an accent. I don't typically try to sound like a native necessarily. I just give a flavor of the accent. Otherwise, it's out of control after a while. But dialogue, yeah, as far as the technical part of it, I try to limit tags. I like to try to convey who is speaking without using a dialogue tag, like he said or she said. If there is another way to do it, like to embed it in a scene with action or something like that, or use it as a transition, it's mm-hmm. another way to do it as well. Dialogue is one of the, I'm not saying I'm good at it, but it is one of the things that I love doing. It's such a fun way to move the plot forward. And as Jim said, to reveal those character aspects as well. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. I don't have a whole lot to add, except I do think I, early on, I got stumbled. I, I got hung up on the idea of um, showing, not telling. And I think that is generally sound advice. But what I've sort of discovered more recently is that by using dialogue, I can actually break that rule and both the dialogue and the prose around it get better. And what I mean is sometimes I'll use dialogue to tell and the prose around it to show, if that makes sense. So instead of like having a character in dialogue describe what's happening, I will let them reflect their, their own emotion or their own, I guess, um, inferences from that. And then I'll use the prose to be like, okay, well, then this and this happened. And then the character will come back in and explain how they feel about that certain thing. And it's really hard to explain. I think you should probably just go read all the Nick Thacker books and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, <laughs> go ahead and buy them as well. I won't give them for free because I hate readers. Paperbacks. Um, Paperbacks. I will Paperbacks, here. preferably. Yeah, I think that's kind of the big takeaway is like, don't hang too too tight to like, well, dialogue is a great way to show and not tell. So let me make sure everything is revealed. I'm reading a book right now that is arguably is very good. The plot is amazing. The idea, their concept for the novel is great, but the dialogue is really bad. And it's bad because it's showing everything, but it's dialogue. So they're like, Almost like Jim said, hey, Nick, how's it going today? Well, it's great, you know, but this bad guy showed up at the house and, and did all these things. And like these two people are in the same room and they both should know that already. <laughs> yeah, who, they are they, both there. who are they explaining to? Exactly. So yeah. it seems very revelatory is like you have an info dump sort of thing every time they talk. And it's very much a back and forth thing. But anyway, there's all kinds of little tidbits and rules. You know, don't use Tom Swifties. It's like, hey, the volcano is about to erupt, he said explosively. Um, there's things like that that are pretty obvious that I think a lot of us probably don't do. But when we try to get away from the he said, she said, that's typically the first we go to an adverb. It's typically the first place we go. It's a trick to not do that and to not do that purposefully. Mm. He said purposefully. <laughs> he said Jim, with intent. What'd you have that there, Jim? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Nick. I thought you were done. I didn't mean to interrupt. I think the most important thing a character can do in any scene is want something. And every character needs to want something and what they're doing needs to be in service of what they outwardly want or what they inwardly need. And usually what they outwardly want is some kind of reflection or clash what they inwardly need. So as long as you're keeping in mind what each character wants in a scene, then I think what flows out from that is a lot more realistic. Because if your character wants something, maybe they're saying something that seems to contradict with that because 
people do that. People don't say what they want. You know, people beat around the bush and take sideways paths to getting what they want. But as long as you know what that character wants, then you can keep that person on track and make them sound more lifelike. Mm, agreed. And I agree. think dialogue is about just developing the ear too. Like a writer, the more you write and the more experience you have, mm. you know if it sounds right to you in your head. It yeah. feels, this dialogue will feel right. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And if I added anything to this, I would say maybe try to make sure that your characters have their own distinct kind of voices. Keep that straight, you know, because dialect and things like that aside, people speak differently. People use different words. People use different syncopations and things like that. And I would also say buy Elmore Leonard books, read Elmore Leonard books, probably the best I've ever found at dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that's good stuff. That's good stuff. All right, guys. Moving along, I'm going to skip story three and save that for the end so we can riff a little. So I'm going to hop over to story four here for you guys that are looking. This comes to us from Jane Friedman. And I guess the article was written by someone named C.S. Larkin. And they said the secret ingredient of a commercially successful novel. So naturally, I clicked after that headline. And uh, <laughs> they say that the secret ingredient in commercially successful novels is microtension. A constant state of tension is what helps novels be very uh, exciting to people, right? Tension is created by a lack of understanding, a lack of closure, a lack of equilibrium or peace. When your readers have questions, that creates tension. When they need to know what happens next, that is the tension. So what do you guys think about that? Is, is that accurate? And if so, how much effort do you spend making things tense in your novels? How about Nick? What you got, Nick? Okay, so in reading this article, I love CS. She's brilliant. I know her. She's a good person and really, really smart. So you would be be wise to take all of the advice she's ever written. But I will say that and she kind of mentioned this a little bit. So it's not that she missed this, but I don't think she made it a big enough point, in my opinion. The point, I think, is microtension is crucial to developing the tension really well as long as there's still macro tension. And she calls these macro tension things like the element, or sorry, the, what did she say it? Big plot twists and reversals and surprises are macro tension items. And these have great potential for sparking emotional response in readers, blah, 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 blah. All that's great. I think it's just, I want to like emphasize, hey, if you don't have those big plot twists and reversals and surprises, your book is kind of boring and it becomes literature and literature sucks. We all know that. Micro tension alone makes literature and nobody wants to read or write that. Period. Nobody. Yeah. Sometimes you need a bell hung on the tension, right? Like you need to know this is a big. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess another way of saying it is like it's take away the big plot twists and reversals and surprises. You're talking about big story structure items here. Like there needs to be an inciting incident. There needs to be a climax. There needs to be a midpoint, I would argue. And so, you know, you call them what you want, but if you don't have those macro tension items, you don't really have a good plot that kind of drives forward. If you can also add the micro tension and sprinkle that in, you know, in between, I think you've got a really, really great shot at being a good book and fun to read. If not, like I said, if you just have microtension, you're writing literature and you might as well stop writing. Mm, mm. Sorry, Craig, I don't like literature. What about what? Yeah, well, I don't blame you. Really like literature. I don't blame you. That's something the Brits like literature, right? And exactly, if they yeah. like it, I know you're not in. So no, exactly. <laughs> Craig, what, what do you do about tension, man? I at least partially agree with Nick. I mean, if you don't have those big moments, I don't see what the point is. 
Um, but as long as you have those big moments, if you can add in the micro tensions, uh, as CS mentions, you can take make a good book into a great book. Mm. And this is something I didn't at all understand because I don't personally like confrontation interpersonally. And I was avoided in my writing, too, because it would make me uncomfortable. Say, for example, you have two characters who disagree about something pretty sharply. I would try to resolve that as quickly as possible to get out of the way. So I felt better about writing it. Um, But what I was missing is that having that underlying tension. So if you have two characters going after a big ticket plot point, right? If they also have something going on interpersonally, that's a whole new thread of the complexity in that plot. Now, you can have a good book without that. And I don't think you can have a good book without the big ticket items because, I mean, I'm all about thrillers and stuff. I like, you know, high octane stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you can layer that stuff in, you can make a good book into a great book. So I don't disagree with either point of view. I think they complement each other. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know if she actually uses these words, but a lot of this constant state of tension and the lack, it's all about delaying gratification. One of my favorite examples of this is in Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. And if you haven't read the book, the movie follows the story almost exactly. But in the movie, we don't actually meet Hannibal Lecter until about 30 or 45 minutes into the movie. But he's brought up constantly in every scene up until then. He's referenced. They basically, they're building him up by giving you this information about him without actually seeing him. So it's still like lack of information. It's still delayed gratification. And they keep, as they build him up throughout the story, his legend gets worse and worse until right before she's about to meet him, Barney the tech is like, here's a picture of what he did to this nurse's face. And we don't get to see the picture. The mm-hmm. camera doesn't get to see it. But what's her face? Uh, Jodie Foster gets to see it. Yeah. And then we actually meet Hannibal Lecter and he's completely different from how he's been described. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like the culmination of that slow building tension over the first act of the movie. And then another example, the example I always think of when I think of good suspense and just nail-biting pacing is in Stephen King's It. Um, I'm going to spoil the book a little bit, but the story is basically about some grown-ups who have to go back to their hometown to defeat an evil monster. And when one of the grown-ups finds out that the, the evil monsters come back, he can't deal with the information. And he just freaks out, goes into his bathroom, and locks the door. But the scene really starts when it switches to his wife's point of view mm-hmm. because she's in the living room. And then for like 15 pages, mm-hmm. King doesn't open the bathroom door. It's mm-hmm. like 15 pages of just being inside his wife's head, wondering why Stanley won't come out of the bathroom, getting more and more upset, building and building and building until we finally find out why he's in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. That sort of tension and pacing, I think, you know. Characters having different goals in a scene, that's a nice tension. But if you really want to build up to something, you need to do something more like that. Very good examples off the top of your head, Jim. I'm impressed with that. Well done, sir. Well done. There's a reason we keep you around, man. (laughs) It's those kind of nuggets right there. Can I, can I follow up on that, Jim? Despite at the end of that sentence. (laughs) We keep you around despite, you know. No, can I follow up on that, Jim? Because I think Please. what, and, and this is actually, I'm asking you to clarify because I, your example is really good. Like in it, it's pretty simple. The tension that you're building, the micro tension, if you will, that you're building is open the bathroom door. It doesn't really matter what's inside the bathroom because the tension is not opening the bathroom door. So literally the author extending that for a hugely long amount of time, forgive my English, is is very tense, right? In your example of Silence of the Lambs, the same thing happens. You build up this tension by not showing us who 
Anthony Hopkins' character is by not showing us Hannibal Lecter until midway point of the movie, at least. And so that's the same exact kind of tension. However, in Silence of the Lambs, you also get a little bit of a twist with that. When the tension is released, when you finally get to meet him, well, he's not anything like what we expected, right? It's like anti-horror movie or something. So there's like a double, there's like a twofer, I guess. That's my only clarification, right? It's like, I didn't read it, so I don't know if that's the same thing. Like maybe he just ate Taco Bell and he's been in the bathroom for 15 minutes. We've all been there, right? Like that would be a twist as well because we expected something far better. I guess his face was getting eaten off, whatever, but oh my God, it's horrifying. He ate Taco Bell. Anyway, is that true? Like, would you agree with yeah, that? Like the yeah, tension yeah, totally is easy. It's that, literally yeah. make something take a long time and then it'll be tense. Yeah. And uh, if you other, can, add the twist in there at the end. There is a, a possible pitfall though, and that's building up the tension and then there's nothing. Mm. I think okay, so would that kind of too. under would that um undercut like some of the tension because it doesn't I like, think that Taco Bell just had a salad. Yeah, I in think there? the reader would feel cheated in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be some sort of payoff. And when mm-hmm. in Silence of the Lands, for example, it, he may not be what we expected, but in a part that's even creepier. It's sort of like right. with Stephen King has figured out that one of the creepiest things is kids and clowns, two of yeah. the supposedly most innocent things, make them evil and they're doubly horrifying, <laughs> right? Yeah. But and I've seen this in movies and in books too, where again that tension they spent so much time building up the tension, but there's no payoff. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, why did I go through all that, all that for? Yeah, no, I agree. That's what worked so well about Silence of the Lambs is the payoff was such a subversion of what you were waiting for that you immediately latched onto this new reality. Like this guy is like the most refined savage I've ever met in my life, and I can't take my eyes off of him. So makes him interesting. Yeah, and it sets up a conflict in your head as the reader because you're like, which one is he? Yeah, right. And then you want to read on to find out which one is true. Right. Was yeah, he falsely yeah. accused? Like, what's going on here? What's the exactly, deal? Exactly. Exactly. Masterpiece, really. Thomas Harris. Yeah, that was an absolute masterpiece. And that's, I think, why I've read a lot about the story structure. And I think that's one of the reasons the movie follows so closely to the book was there was just, it didn't have to change anything. Mm. It was all just, okay, cool. You got it. You nailed it. Yeah. Screenplay's written. <laughs> Easiest can't, job ever, you know? <laughs> yeah. You can't mess with uh, perfection. And Thomas Harris did it great. All right, guys. So uh, the last thing I got for us here. The hundred. Oh, I'm Nick. I'm sorry, man. Nick, can you do earmuffs real quick so I can read the story? The story is from The Guardian, which is a paper from the UK. You guys know how Nick handles that. So from this random newspaper, Nick's earmuffs are off now that I shall not name uh, the hundred best novels written in English. According to them, it says after two years of careful consideration, Robert McCrum has reached a verdict on his selection of the 100 greatest novels written in English. So this list is pretty expansive. You guys got an idea of how many of these you've read or how many you're interested in reading? Can we just talk for a minute about how he had two years to come up with this? Is that his job? Can I have that job? (laughs) Yes. Let's talk about it. Like what kind of, sorry, I can't even right now just with this, like he just sits in a chair and thinks all day and they pay him. And then two years later, they're like, hey, you got that assignment that, you could probably just scrape from Wikipedia in two minutes. And he's like, mm, I've thought about it at length and ad nauseum and puff, puff, puff from a big pipe, right? I, I've decided that these are the best. This, this is exactly how he sounds, I'm sure. I don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> I just want to think about the six-month mark, the one-year mark, and he has he tells him to come back later because he's not quite done. <laughs> they fall for that. 
<laughs> layers of the onion. <laughs> Maybe we should that. be talking to Robert McCrum and seeing how I wish this was the this onion, off. but it's not. This is real. <laughs> I mean, if, if we're going to actually talk about the book, I looked through the list and I've read about 20 of these. And then there was about 10 more that I was supposed to read in high school, but I never did. <laughs> So there's about the, 10 of these. I probably read the Cliff's Notes and not the actual book. Nice, nice. So just to muddle around a little bit, you got stuff like Pilgrim's Progress, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, uh, Clarissa, which I had never heard of, Tom Jones, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Emma Frankenstein, you know, stuff like that. So a lot of it is stuff that we see all the time, Call of the Wild and anything uh Craig, are you reading through a list like this? Are you interested in the classics or you just kind of take what catches your eyes now? Yeah. Earlier on when I was was into the classics for a while and I read a few of these, but I think some of these he's just showing off. Some of these I haven't even heard of. Yeah. Uh, like Hadrian the Seventh. Yeah. No clue. I don't know. I think everybody knows what the best novels are. Do we really need Robert McCrum to give us another list? I don't know. I think most uh, of these books have been on lists before. What makes his list better than anybody else's list? His, I'm, I'm sort of a Nick on this. Like, why is this a job? <laughs> I'm just glad to see Robert McCrum still working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I heard he came on hard times, so I'm glad he bootstrapped himself up with this list. <laughs> uh, actually, I was kind of interested. You know, at 32, they've got Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And, you know, that's one of the worst books ever written. Correct. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's the basis for Apocalypse Now, right? And so if it's the basis for Apocalypse Now, looks like it was published in 1899. I mean, am I reading that right? I had no clue. I thought it was definitely more recent than that. That's kind of weird to me. I want to know why there's not one single Kurt Vonnegut book on this list. There isn't? If you, nope. If you had to add a Kurt Vonnegut book, which one would you add? Oh, man. Either Slaughterhouse-Five or maybe Cat's Cradle or Mother Night was also... I mean, his stuff is so good. All of it's so good. I don't know. Probably Slaughterhouse-Five is probably his most seminal work. That's his trippiest, weirdest thing. Well, we will put a... Oh, 1984. Okay. I haven't read all these, and so I'm going to give my early vote for the most overrated one that I know, though. The Catcher in the Rye. I just don't understand it, man. I just don't understand it. Like Holden Kolf, he's just kind of a tool. Like I don't, I don't understand how it's supposed to be like such a pillar of the culture experience. I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. I think he added some of these things on here because I don't necessarily know that they're the best novels, but they did something special to literature. Like they changed mm-hmm. something. They introduced like the the antihero or something like that. Yeah, um, but you're I, right. It's for his books. If you were to write them now, a lot of these are probably important because of what they were at the time. You know, mm-hmm. like I read Jack Kerouac's On the Road and I didn't get it. I was like, they got in a car, they drove to one side of the country, <laughs> then they drove back <laughs> and then they smoked some weed and then it was over. But at the time, beatniks were like, oh, my God, this is amazing because it was just like a spoke to that. I don't know, whatever the beatnik generation, whatever exactly. blase apathy rebellion they were going through at the time it really spoke to that but for me it was just like a kind of a boring road trip book mm. so the author that i'm missing here is ayn rand i think there should be at least one of hers i'm particularly inclined to add anthem because i think it's just a really cool way of telling a story but you know there's obviously atlas shrugged there's 
So that's my personal preference. I mean, I don't fault him for not putting it on there because I think she has been politicized, I should say, right? So mm. cool. He didn't want to add it on there. But one of the things that I was going to point out, and I'm actually, okay, I see how they ordered this list. 2000, right. they put it from earliest Date. public to, yeah, so reverse chronolo or chronological order. I was actually curious about what the newest book on this list was. And it looks like he's got some stuff in the 80s. Yeah. Some 70s books. Like, okay, so that makes sense. I was going to make a comment on like most, at least in America, most high school English teachers refuse to acknowledge any literature after like 1970, and which I think is just stupid. But uh, to his credit, old Robbie doesn't do that. <laughs> got a couple. Can- I don't know if they're like tokens, but... Underworld, he's got Disgrace, and True History of the Kelly Gang by Peter Carey, which I thought was terrible, but whatever. And I actually think it's kind of interesting. I was looking to see if he had any Salman Rushdie on it, Rushdie, Rushdie. And he's got Midnight's Children, but not the Satanic Verses. So that was kind of interesting to see why he would pick one versus the other. But, you know, what do I know? We'll have to call Robbie sometime and see. All right, I think you should haul him up here and we're going to grill him about every single entry on this list. Make him defend every single one. What about Moby Dick? What about Alice Adventures Wonderland? Yeah. What about Moonstone? Number one, Pilgrim's Progress. (laughs) Where did you come up with this one? (laughs) Question number one, what were you thinking? Question number two, what gives you the right? (laughs) That's the one I was thinking of. So I, I guess Pilgrim's Progress, you could argue, is like the first like real fiction novel i particularly think it's don quixote i think that was actually the first one of course that was written in spanish so it doesn't get to be on this list Hmm. but so i'm like did he just put that on there because it's the oldest english not like i don't know it just seems (laughs) weird (laughs) well in any event if you guys want to check out the list uh, we'll have it in the show notes and you guys can look and play the game of uh you would have added or would have omitted from this list see how many you've read it looks like we are out of time. You guys got anything to add? Any alibis or mulligans from the day? No? All right. Well, I want to thank Mr. Craig Hart for uh, joining us. It's always great to see you, Craig. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Second time, too, or first time, depending on how these are. I don't know. So Exactly. We have a little bit of time travel inception thing going, you know. My <laughs> DeLorean's out front, and things can get a little hairy sometimes. But, uh, yeah, you're always welcome back, my man. We, very glad to have you on, bro. Very glad to have you on. All right. Uh, We might as well bookend and have a failure sandwich. (laughs) And that's going to taste the best for all of us. So for all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm R.A. McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) 